The title for the talk this morning is Reconnecting to Our Mind. The title, of course, implies that uh, we have allowed the workings, the operations of our mind to become disconnected, to drift away from the intricate ensemble, the intricate amalgam of our being. We are complex beings. And yet, the minds are so unidimensional. And as we are unidimensional and disconnected, we are doomed to roam about mindlessly. How else? Driven by unexamined urges and compulsions. So, that's the topic. During the talk, I'll first examine how is it that we became, that we have become, alienated from our deeper mind. And in the second part, I'll look into how to reconnect, how to take it back. So, how did, become, did we become alienated? How did we come to live in this inner universe where we've taken leave of our mind and our senses? The prevailing fact seems to be that we have opted out of reality and have chosen instead to connect with, with irreality, with a system that we invented, that we fabricated in the hope of avoiding ups and downs, the ups and downs of life, the, the realities, the unreliability of life. Fat chance, right? 2,500 years ago, the Buddha exposed the nature of this fabricated system in a teaching known as dependent arising. Also dependent origination, codependent arising, different translations. And I've often talked about that, and I'll, I'll encapsulate it briefly, in a nutshell. The centerpiece of the teaching of dependent arising is the way we fabricate the I, the ego. How do we make it up? We make it by wanting this or that. And then the wanting begets the wanter. And to exacerbate things, when we get what we want, we cling to it. And the clinger becomes, the clinging creates the clinger. Now, it's true that any verb could be treated this way, but there's a, a power, stickiness with wanting and clinging. 
it, it rubs in a different way. Why? Because indeed, much of the wanting is designed to create the clinger and the wanter. And these are forms of the ego, very obvious forms of the ego. And eventually, none of these identities that we fabricate that way can last. This, all this wanting is just a short-term short solution for our existential anxiety, and, and a fake solution at that. Sooner or later, we're back where we started, in the throes of insecurity. Now, this tendency to follow this dependent arising path has been exacerbated incredibly in the last uh, decades even, certainly centuries, but even more decades, with uh, all kinds of technologies that we have developed, including electronic technologies, video games, uh, internet. We, we use all that and of course, consumerism. Wow. It's sophisticated forms of consumerism at a level unsuspected by my parents even in, in their time. And of course, the world of finance has gone berserk as well. I, I, I could go into all of this, but this gets get too complicated. Let me just to keep things simple, let me just focus on one thing that modernity, not the latest modernity, but modernity has brought. Namely, the methods for quantifying the self. You see, if you're going to evaluate the self, it's so nice to have a figure there. I don't know whether well, when I get my bank accounts, I generally get these flyers from the bank, and you may get them too. Uh, the latest I, I received a couple of weeks ago had a whole thing, and even a seminar, you were invited to attend a seminar on how to calculate your net worth. Now, why in earth is this Important, I suppose, for, you know, for financial transactions, but your bank will do it for you in front of you. It's their worry, not you. But why would I want to find out my net worth, for heaven's sake? Because, of course, it seems to spell out my self-worth. That's what it does in our culture. I mean, that's if you are into money. Now, if you are into sports, well, opportunities galore. I mean, the World Cup was a kind of a, a feverish event for those who are into sports. I, I, I wasn't totally indifferent, you know. 
I was up there with Diego Maradona, who very much, I'm Argentinian of my origin, you know. Uh, he, he really personalizes his uh, hysteria with success. But, I mean, baseball, batting averages, whatever, like, all kinds of measures. If you have a measure, you seem to have a handle. But there are many other ways of measuring. How many friends do you have? Kids in high school, oh wow, I, I know, I have grandchildren. That's very important. And of course, virtual friends. By golly, you collect them through the internet. It's easy. <laughs> if you're an artist, how many shows have you exhibited in? You know? Or even better, how many paintings have you sold? You translated in money. If you're a scientist, obvious, how many publications? And of course, it makes a difference where. It's also true. And see, perhaps not, I used to be a scientist. So, 30 years ago, I wrote a paper. It's a little more than 30 years ago, actually. I wrote a paper which eventually, 30 years ago, got into the Hall of Fame of the 500 most quoted papers. Wow. Um, this was done by a, a publication called Current Contents. I suppose it's defunct now. And it's probably in the internet, but it came out in paper. And so the, they invited me, as they do invite the authors, the main authors of such uh, papers and reach the Hall of Fame to write something. I was curious, looked it up, happened to have a copy. Here's, here it is. I mean, I'll, I'll just read some quotes from this paper that I wrote. Just a few sentences. Having made the hit parade of the top 500 most quoted papers, whatever complacency it generates in me is overshadowed by other more pertinent considerations. I like to think that I have made contribution to, to science of greater or originality and input than that one. Because this was about improving a, a test, a, a quantitative test, color test, to, for something, N-acetylglucosamine, if you want to say. <laughs> and yes, the, the test that was being used was not very good, and so I improved it. Very, very simple, really, it wasn't. But because of the nature of that, it got quoted many times, because anybody who used it had to quote it. And so I, I say a little further down. What disturbs me most, however, is the establishment of this kind of scientific hall of fame utilizing a criterion which is which is only feebly correlated with scientifically significant parameters, but very much a transplant of quantitative marketing techniques from the world of business to that of science. Fine. 
But of course, if you see through that, what I was saying is that not stop measuring, but measure what's good to measure. <laughs> I was, of course, I was a scientist, delighted in the fame that I could get. But I say, I want to have fame for something that I, 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 I think is valuable, not this. So, you know, I didn't really break with establishment in any way. <laughs> Now, this relentless pursuit of success in all areas invites arbitrary measurements. I, I understand. Once you want to measure, 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 you pick up anything. The most quoted papers seem to be the easiest one. Bestseller in literary literature, the bestseller, New York Times list, whatever. And this relentless pursuit of arbitrary measurements has damaged seriously our educational system. Yeah, all that counts is the scores a student get in certain standardized tests. That's all. Forget the quality of the learning, the multidimensionality of the mind. We just care about the unidimensionality of this course. And on that basis, of course, we said that the, the position in the totem pole of success. Nothing else seems to matter. As for the deeper mind, forget it. We become alienated disconnected from it. In the pursuit of the illusory safety of our an invented world. We do so individually and as I will make clear tomorrow, we'll do so, we do so collectively as well. So that's the situation in and the few aspects that I could look into. Isn't it time to reconsider? Isn't it time to start freeing our mind from being colonized by the self? Colonized. I think it is. Then how do we do it? How do we regain our mind? How do we reconnect with it? As I mentioned in yesterday's talk, the guidelines for doing anything with your mind with our mind, have to be pragmatic. And they do depend, of course, on the culture we are in. And again, not to talk about everything. I want to emphasize one key injunction for regaining our mind. 
and that is to open it up, to make accessible to us all the fullness of our mind, dark places and all. This is obvious, should be obvious, but we have trained so long in avoidance that we continue to dodge the difficult places, even while trying to open up. And yet, this was the Buddha's story, you know, basically, as perhaps you know. The Buddha was a son of a king. He lived a pampered life. And yet, under, underneath that setting of luxury, he, there was a lingering dissatisfaction that remained. There must have been. Otherwise, he would not have left, left the palace. He realized he could get nowhere by just continuing to pamper himself. And, and he could do that. And he could become the, the next king and, and all that. Instead, he said, let's go into the world and into and, and my dark world, too, and see what I find. And he left the palace. And he exposed himself to all forms of pain and suffering. At times too much, then he said, this is too much. I find a middle way, but still, he exposed himself. It was six years of hard work. And finally, during the night of his enlightenment, he dived into the full catastrophe. He exposed himself, as the legend goes, to the forces of hell, <coughs> represented by Mara, the devil. And in the morning, he came out the other end free and last. Of course, this is the stuff of legend. It's a bit too neat to have actually happened exactly that way. But that's not the point of legends, and this legend in particular. This legend is being transmitted to us for a purpose, namely to teach us that we need to go through hell before we can reach paradise. In the formal teachings of the Buddha, this is encapsulated in what's called the first noble truth, which simply says, says there is suffering, which implies, of course, we need to go there. We need to go through the reality of things, and the reality includes suffering. Go into it when it presents itself to you. For me, 
the point of entry into suffering and despair occurred when Raquel left me 30 years ago and, and brought my whole contrived world crumbling down. It left me no alternative, although I tried very hard to find alternatives, but it eventually it left me no alternative but to look at the reality of my life, to let my fantasies come to an end. I, I realized finally that I had no alternative to, to dive into the morass of the real and was fortunate at that time to discover the practice in my trip to India. Eventually, I was able to reconnect with the whole, or at least much of my mind, and with Raquel as well. That's just a footnote. <laughs> incidentally, <laughs> incidentally, we are very happily divorced now. <laughs> what happened to me is also true for many. I mean, I talk about myself not to, just because I, I, I know it firsthand. There's no question about that for me. But I know that secondhand about many, that grief can open the door for the uncharted territory of the real. If we keep our heart and mind closed, our possibilities are few. But when grief or whatever opens our heart up, possibilities are unimaginable. Meditation practice facilitates the opening of that door of our heart by inviting us to be fully present with whatever comes up with the here and now. Instead of straying into an alienated world of fantasy, oh, we do that too occasionally, but we, we bring the mind back, right? It goes up, bring the mind back. To what? To something very simple. Could be the breath, whatever it is. Some simple object of attention. And we cultivate the ability to be present with that experience in the chosen area, the breath, for instance. Be it pleasant or unpleasant. Be it full of joy or full of grief. And we are there. And we cry and we smile to ourselves. No difference, because we are present. No evaluation. what the practice that we've been doing and will continue to do for a day and a half 
if not much longer, hopefully much longer too. A practice is designed to allow us to do that. And true, that's not to say that this practice or meditation practice is the only way. It's, it's the most obvious way, yes. It's a way that works by all means. Uh, a Zen Buddha Dasa, a Buddhist master of Thailand who died a few years ago, uh, talks about insight that occurs spontaneously, uh, naturally. Here's uh, a little segment from what he writes. He says, in the scriptures, sorry, in the scriptures, there are numerous references to people attaining naturally all stages of enlightenment. This generally came about in the presence of the Buddha himself, but also happened later with other teachers. These people did not go into the forest and sit, assiduously practicing concentration on certain object in the way described in latter manuals. Clearly, no organized effort was involved when full enlightenment was attained by the first five disciples of the Buddha upon hearing the discourse on non-selfhood, or by the 1,000 hermits upon hear, hearing the fire sermon. In these cases, king penetrating insight came about quite naturally. These examples clearly show that natural concentration is liable to develop of its own accord while one is attempting to understand clearly some question. And that the resulting insight, as long as it's firmly established, can be quite intense and stable. It happens naturally, automatically. So here I am undermining the reasons why you came here. <laughs> but of course, these are very special circumstances. Buddha Dasa is talking about, first, the Far East. He's from Thailand, but he's talking about India particularly. And then the times of the Buddha. And he's talking about hermits. He's talking about people who are immersed in a culture of spirituality. We are not. We're immersed in a different culture. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm wonderful. But I don't know of any contemporary cases of instant enlightenment. I'd be fine. Absolutely. What I've been curious about in our culture is that certainly beginning to pay attention to mental states which uh, have been 
traditionally classified as abnormal and uh, uh, to be avoided. And yet, for all the difficulties, we have some blessings as well. In fact, recently, our even our mainstream media is paying attention to the best benefits of aging when it's accompanied by the emergence of inner peacefulness and insight. Here's a couple of segments from an article that came out recently in Newsday, News, Newsweek, sorry, Newsweek. And the title of the article is Pleasant, My Mother's Case of Pleasant Dementia. The author of this article talks about Alice, her mother. And uh, I'll just read a few paragraphs. When I asked Alice, quote, if you could take a pill would you, that would let you remember everything, would you want to do that? Obviously, a mother is very forgetful. I, I know that <laughs> from first-hand experience. <laughs> I have to make notes to myself all the time. <laughs> I'll give him. So if you could take a pill that would let you remember everything, would you want to do that? And the mother says, no, I find the way I am. What do you want me to remember? <laughs> well, says the daughter, your granddaughter just got married. You walk down the aisle and dance. Wouldn't you like to remember those happy occasions? She thought for a moment. There are a lot of unpleasant things, too. She knocked wood on the table. I'm fine the way I am. My sister Terry started looking for a care center near her home in Hawaii and found one where Alice could have company and constant activities. Okay. Then it says, the morning of the flight, she didn't protest. That is, Alice didn't protest. Landing in Hawaii, she was driven to the care home and sat down to eat with the other residents. Years ago, I used to call her the sent back queen, because in restaurants, she would send back every dish if it wasn't prepared exactly as she ordered. <laughs> At the new home, she ate an overcooked hamburger in a dry bun with no complaint. Then she joined a group in singing and went to bed with a smile. What had caused that reversal of personality? Did dementia bring her serenity and the ability to live in the moment? State, says the author, I've spent many hours in meditation trying to attain. <laughs> it would seem that we need memory in order to hold a grudge, worry or be angry. 
to obsess about a problem or compare the present unfavorably with the past, we need to remember it. Yet many people with Alzheimer's do become angry, paranoid of agitated. Dr. Robert Greene says he sees patients get more cantankerous and disagreeable. Lots of researchers are looking at these negative behaviors. But I can't recall a paper about people who get more blissful. It was a geriatric, geriatric psychologist in New York, Michael Mitchell, sorry, Mitchell Slutsky, who told me about the subset of pleasant, pleasantly demented. Most doctors I interviewed hadn't heard the term, but when I put out the word, I received a flood of emails from friends and bloggers saying they had relatives who were pleasantly demented. Dr. Peter Whitehouse, professor of neurology at Case Reserve University, says he's a Buddhist practitioner and finds it fascinating to consider what it means to live in the moment, because in many ways, that's what dementia brings. So there you have just, <laughs> just three alternatives. <laughs> Practice, going back to the times of the Buddha, of pleasant dementia. <laughs> but they're not exclusive, so at least the first and the last alternative are not exclusive. In sum, while a variety of circumstances may create conditions for the emergence of an insightful mind. Meditation practice is a preeminent way of facilitating. And just a footnote here, of course, Alice may be very happy in her retirement home, but she wouldn't function in the ordinary world. So the practice allows us to, to have the, to continue to have the working mind for the ordinary life and also to have an insight into the reality of our being. And practice makes us, makes it possible for us to become aware firsthand, right, you see, first mind, of the fix we are in, how we have become cut off from our body and mind and from the world. Even from being able to stay put with the sensations accompanying breath. It's amazing how, at times, how difficult that can be. And but that's a great lesson, you know. We need to say, do something about it. We need to say enough, enough with being lost in the proliferation of our thoughts, enough in being cut with, from the real, cut off from the real. Such is the past that leads us to drop once and for all 
the petition fragmenting our being and to regain our wholeness. A path that leads us not to yet another destination, but to come home to our true nature. So let's sit in silence together, maybe listen to the bell, or to our heart, or to our mind, or to our whole being, just for a few minutes. <laughs> 